where liberty is our mission. Today is Tuesday, July 15th, 2014. This is podcast number 375, and my name is Ben Stone. And with me on the phone on Skype is uh, Randy England, and uh, I could give Randy a pretty wide um, introduction. I could talk about his experience as an attorney, as a prosecutor, as an author, uh, as a writer for LouRockwell.com or as uh, one of the co-hosts of the Freedom Fiends radio show. But instead, I think I'm just going to say, Randy, I've wanted to have you on the show for a long time, and I'm finally able to say, Randy England, welcome to the Bad Quaker Podcast. Good morning, Ben. I'm really glad to be here. Uh, let me start off with just a mention of uh, of your book and of the recent article over at LouRockwell.com. Uh, Randy, what's the actual name of your uh, your book about uh, libertarians and Catholics? Well, the name name of the book is "Free Is Beautiful," uh, subtitled "Why Catholics Should Be Libertarian," and uh, it's actually I think everyone should be libertarian, but you have to start somewhere. And I just started with my particular group, and that's what the book is about. I meant to make this disclosure before we started, and it just skipped my mind, but I should mention to the listeners that I'm in a, uh, a campground that is particularly noisy with engine sounds and children playing and things. So if we have some background noise, uh, that's my fault, and that's what its uh, what its origin is. But um, Randy, uh, your recent article over at Lou Rockwell, I really enjoyed it. Uh, it was it was in reference to a sort of an anti-libertarian get-together of uh, respected Catholics where they essentially took turns uh, putting up um, straw man arguments and false dichotomies and rather silly attacks against libertarians that uh, – and, and you were – just in your article at Lou Rockwell, you were an absolute gentleman. You were really polite. And I find myself uh, more and more as I get older, I find myself dealing with people like that less and less politely. I have a tendency just to point at them and laugh and make fun of them and call them stupid, say that they're, you know, that they're, uh, uh, their convictions are based on evil and things like that. But you didn't, you didn't go down that easy route. You actually, um, handled them, I thought, very carefully, very politely, and yet you also very clearly showed that their idea of what libertarian is, uh, is not really what their average libertarian would think is libertarian. Well, you know, Ben, I sure appreciate you say, saying that. I, I wasn't sure when I wrote it if I if I took the right tone or anything. I think I, I consciously knew that it would not be appropriate to just um, go in with my sword flailing <laughs> and, and attacking. Uh, and I'll get to that. What the thing was about was that last month there was a conference at Catholic University, of course, in Washington, D.C., uh, 
and the name of the conference was Erroneous Autonomy, which I think means that, you know, we think that we we are self-governing, but we're not, and we're erroneous in thinking that. But anyway, it was subtitled The Catholic Case Against Libertarianism, which uh, lets you know that they're not going to be debating the topic. They're just going to uh, uh, bolster the title, and that would be, and that is what happened. And, you know, the initial story about that conference that came out probably within a day after it happened was they had the keynote speaker was uh, Cardinal, uh, you know, I never get this right. I, I apologize for not getting, being sure about Hispanic names, but Cardinal Archbishop Rodriguez Meridiaga of Honduras. And some people call him Cardinal Rodriguez and some call him Cardinal Meridiaga. And I'm not sure which is right. So I was probably better just to use both of the names. But uh, anyway, the Cardinal wrote, I mean, he gave a um, a keynote address and it was very much very hostile to the free market and taking off on some things that Pope Francis has said, and I'm not even going there, but it seems that every time they get one more step away or one person away from, say, what Pope Francis has said, it, it gets it gets worse. Pope Francis will say something that is ambiguous, and by the time that the next person gets a hold of it, it's not even ambiguous. It is uh, it's practically socialist, and and Tom Woods wrote a, a real good article about uh, the archbishops, the cardinal archbishops' speech, and so did uh, Ryan McMacken. And, uh, and those, if, if anyone will read them, they're, they're very worth reading. And the links to that are uh, at Lou Rockwell, and I also included that in my, my post on it. But the thing that got me going after that was within a few weeks, all of the videos had been posted for this conference, and I just had to go and watch them. And uh, it was just one person after another after another, and they just kept hammering in that one nail. Um, it was directed mostly in uh, toward economic things. You would think that the uh, people that put on the conference, if they just called it the uh, case against libertarianism, that they would sort of make a broad attack on libertarianism. I think I wrote in my article that they should have titled it the case against the Acton Institute. I'm not sure if you, you're familiar with the Acton <laughs> oh, Institute, yeah, yeah. but they, uh, they are a, uh, they're run by a Catholic priest and it's, but it's not real. It's just, it's dedicated to uh, Lord Acton and his, he was very, very, uh, uh, big freedom guy back in the 19th century in England. But it's mostly a free market organization and not specifically libertarian. But when it comes to the free market, they're very good. And, of course, that was what was being attacked. But anyway, they called it the case against libertarianism. And one thing that I noticed is that the speakers all just really avoided mentioning what basic libertarian is. You could not find the non-aggression principle. Uh, in this conference from every speaker. One guy tried to give a definition of it. I don't want to be unfair to him. But everyone else just completely missed that, uh, the idea that we do not initiate physical force against one another uh, was completely absent. And, you know, I think I, I wrote that 
to get into that and leaving other people alone starts sounding too much like the golden rule. And if you're an ostensibly uh, Catholic or, or Christian conference, that would be uncomfortable if you started attacking something that sounded like the golden rule. So they they stayed away from it. There was um, each speaker when they got up to to talk is in front of this poster that's right is behind the podium or just enough to the side of it. You can actually read the podium and it was from one of the sponsors of the organization of the conference. It was called uh, bread for the world was the organization. <laughs> and there's a slogan on this and you're reading it. And the slogan says, and let me just quote the thing. It says bread for the world, a collective Christian voice urging our nation's decision makers to end hunger at home and abroad. And you just want to do the face slap. You read that thing. And if you go to their website and read it, these guys are just lobbyists. They're like, send us money and we will take congressmen out to dinner. Wow. We, we won't take any poor guys out to dinner. <laughs> we don't, we don't feed anybody. But we're going to affect the nation's decision makers and see if they would dig just a little deeper in everybody's pocket and we're going to take care of poverty in this world. And that's just, it's so backwards, but that is the entire gist of where these people think that we're going and where libertarians go completely wrong. From from the radical religious position that I find myself in, when I see something like that, you know, to me, that actually is blasphemous. Because to me, that is placing uh, the only way we can, you know, end poverty or end starvation or help these poor people is if the all-knowing and all-benevolent government does if if we beg the government properly and if we if we lie before the government prostate and if we and if we summons you know all the powers of our prayer to government and if government hears our woes then government can come and save the poor and to me that's just i mean that's that's my summary of of what is said in something like that and to me that is just pure blasphemy within the the realms of my radical religious beliefs well, you know, it really is, and it, it is usurping uh, the, to themselves things that belong to others, whether it's the whether uh, the God on one side or the role of a Christian on the other. The, um, the thing that, that really bothers me, and they never seem to get at all, is that it's like they don't know why they're here on this earth. They really, you know, the Gospels are really full of, of you know, Jesus' concern for the poor. And, and we, should, we should help the poor, and that is a theme. And it's easy to mistake those, those themes of, of loving others and helping the poor as if God needs us to feed the poor. Right. He doesn't need us to do anything. We need to do that to become the kinds of people that we were we were meant to be and to fulfill, you know, our purpose here. Mm-hmm. It's it's like we're not here as a favor to them. They're here as a favor to us so that we can um do with our free will what we were put here to do. Uh 
the the funny thing that that is about that is so odd about free will. I mean, go back to the whole you know the story of Adam and Eve, you know, in the garden, and uh, Adam and Eve, you know, they were completely free to do whatever they wanted, and God warned them, you can you can do anything you want, you can eat anything you want except you know that one tree, uh, and you were free to eat anything but not the fruit of the particular tree. And if they did eat the fruit of the tree, uh, it would kill them, right? Mm-hmm. So this is going to, to, to kill you. It's going to bring death in the, to the world. And then he just left them free to do it. And, and of course, they went ahead and ate the fruit. And, and so, well, we all know what the history is from then. And a lot of heartache and trouble came from the fact that God gave them the free will to follow their will or follow follow his because he's not going to force anybody to do anything. This is so weird that God would do that. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I mean I mean what what do humans do? What do humans do when they don't want something to happen and they have the power to stop it? Yeah, we run up and try to try to interfere and stop it. Yeah, yeah, when we want to prevent anything from happening, we're going to take concrete steps. We're going to stop it from happening. Yeah. If we can stop it, well, we'll just flat out stop it. And if we can't, you know, reliably stop somebody from doing something, then we declare it to be a crime and then we punish it afterward. And and then you have this this odd, very odd thing of of God's reaction to evil, totally different. I mean, God has absolute power to stop evil from ever happening, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, he could stop it at any time he wanted. He didn't even need to make us to begin with. Right. But when he did, he could have made us into robots. He could have made this a perfect perfect world. He could have a perfect world where no innocent bystander ever got shot, nothing bad ever happened, and everybody did exactly what he wanted. He, I mean, we could have been like a little train set for God and everything would have run perfectly all the time. Mm-hmm. And of course this is, you know, I mean, people, this is an argument. I understand it. It's a, it's a, a logical argument against God. Why would, uh, why, if there was a, if there was a God and he's as good as you say, why does he allow all this evil to happen? And the reason, well, I don't understand it all completely, but I'm assuming that the reason he allows it to happen is because he thought the game was worth the candle. Yeah, exactly. And uh, and so here we are anyway with with uh, having the ability to to make bad things happen and cause bad things in a world that's that's corrupted, and yet um, he lets it go on. Why is he doing that? And the reason he's doing it is because it's the only way that he could figure out to make genuinely good people without making robots. Yeah. We have to choose to be good. You got it. Exactly. It's not forced upon us. Because only, only free men can become good men. I mean, to vert, to be virtuous absolutely requires liberty. And that's what these anti-libertarian Catholics, Christians, whoever do not, uh, ever put together the idea idea that if you come in and have a cop stand behind every person, how will you ever uh, create? Uh, I mean, create good people that would actually do the right thing, even when the cop was not standing behind them. Yeah, 
Yeah, if a person will only give to a charity under the circumstances that if they don't, then they're, you know, cops going to kick in their door and take, you know, take their stuff and sell it at an auction through the IRS and then distribute it to a charity. If that's the only way you'll support a charity, then you're not really supporting a charity. You're just being robbed. Exactly. That's, I mean, that's that's so true. Um, anyway, I was I got off on a tangent back back <laughs> to the thing with the conference. But at this conference, you know, the thing that they like to do is go and pick some particularly um, unappealing libertarian and then say, oh, this is the libertarian. I mean, if you're in a, you, they go and they point it at Ayn Rand. Right. They love to do that. that. Yeah, who is extremely uh, individualistic? At least when you when you read her, and maybe don't understand her completely. Also, uh, she, also, she didn't like to be referred to as libertarian. She no, openly no. claimed that she was not a libertarian. Yeah, well, that won't that won't stop them. They <laughs> they just want to point to some of the things she said that sounded kind of nasty, mm-hmm. and and they did, and uh, and say well. This individualism of of Ayn Rand and and her idea that uh, selfish is good, you know, that sounds so much like Gordon Gecko, you know, saying greed is good, right? And uh, and that that kind of thing. And so they point to her and say, this is what libertarians are like. And of course, when you're talking to a group of Christians, this pure individualism, this this selfishness that comes through there is that that's not selling real good. You know, we we look at libertarianism a bit different, not not that we don't accept the non-aggression principle, but it's fine to say uh, don't tread on me, but turn the coin over and it says don't tread on your neighbor. Right. And I prefer uh, to turn the coin over and, and see it from that standpoint as a matter of fact, the only way that we can be active, and this isn't exactly active, I guess, but the only thing that we can do to be a libertarian is to is to mind our own business and, and let other people live their lives. For us to just stand up and scream, leave me alone, uh, you're not actually uh, advancing the cause. Right. But by leaving other people alone, you are. So I sort of think that the other side of the individualist coin is more to the point, and it's, it also gets uh, more traction when you're talking to groups of people who it's a given uh, to them that they have to be concerned uh, with other people, and yes, to some degree, and they they are their brother's keeper, and they, they should be looking out for them and for their welfare, and that, that doesn't fit in very well with the with the Ayn Rand thing. It's the same thing, you know, they'll like Murray Rothbard. I mean, he was, he was just a brilliant genius, but, um, you know, there's a few things that he had that I don't completely agree with. And and one that doesn't fit real well with most Christian groups. And that is his, uh, he had some ideas about child abandonment that were frankly horrendous. And his views on, on abortion wouldn't fit in front of any Catholic audience. I know that. Mm-hmm. And so what do they do? They say, oh, libertarian is horrible, horrible. Look at look what Mr. Libertarian said about, you know, abortion or, or uh, child abandonment. And, uh, you know, they're right, but they, they won't bother to say yes. But look what, uh, you know, every Catholic libertarian 
you know, disagrees with that and, and points out how that is not essential. Right. And it's not a necessary part of the non-aggression principle. I, that's why I so often, you just have to go back to the non-aggression principle. Every once in a while I read an article, you know, that says the non-aggression principle is, does not really work or something. I'm thinking it really does work and I'm thinking nothing else works without it. Right. You, just have, you almost have to just drag things back to it and say, you're getting off track here. Uh, you know, the old, the thick and thin libertarianism that's, you know, talk, been talked about over the last six months and that. Mm-hmm. I, I, you always have to go back to it. Yeah, I think, you know, and, and trying to tape caveats to it or tape exceptions or try to make odd explanations as to how you can make it apply to this or not make it apply to that. I think all of that is just noise in the background. It's, it's such a simple thing. You know, uh, I think as a general rule, truth is, is typically very simple. And uh, the non-aggression principle, or I like to say zero aggression principle, but it's very it's very elegant in its simplicity. And the more complicated you make it, the less closer to truth I think that it becomes. I think so. It's it's very clear when you just state it. I mean, it's 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 a short sentence all by itself, and you can take it and take any situation and kind of drag the non-aggression principle over and lay it on top of the situation and you can see what's lying outside the box and figure out what's wrong with your original (laughs) analysis it just works yeah you know this is a i don't know if i can relate this in a logical way or not but i'm seeing something here that's very similar to uh a problem i have with pork fest you know we have this yearly celebration and and everybody just loves pork fest and all the people that go there you go there once and and it's like an addictive thing you just can't wait to get back again um but when i look at media um uh, you know, the media reports of what Porkfest is like. There's always this underlying theme that Porkfest ultimately is this hedonistic, uh, giant sex ritual where there's just drugs and sex and, and, and the reality is, uh, if you get 3,000 people together, the majority of which are under 30 years old, there's gonna be stuff going on. Um, but, from what I saw at Porkfest uh, for the last three years running, I saw a lot of families. I saw a lot of young people. I saw a lot of young families where kids were playing in the pool, where there's, you know, uh, the Zombies Against Humans game that goes over the entire facility where kids are just running all over the place in costume. And, and I saw as, as much of a family event as anything else. Now, it's true that I didn't stay up until three o'clock in the morning and find out what comes out and what happens, you know, around campfires at three o'clock in the morning. But I think what I, what I see regularly with Porkfest is an attempt to make it sound to the public like it is just this wild hedonistic thing rather than saying there's a lot of different people there and a lot of different stuff is going on. Uh, and I, and I think that's the same kind of a false image of libertarians that people like to portray to Christians. It's like, this is why you can't be a libertarian because there are, there are libertarians that approve of X behavior that we find offensive or, or they won't condemn X behavior over here of these other people that we find offensive and therefore all libertarians must embrace that 
you know, whatever that thing was. And, and I it, think it's really a, just a false argument that they put up against us. Well, there, there are so many people, though, that cannot imagine that you might disapprove of a particular activity, but make no effort to stop it. Yeah. And, and so there may be a dozen things, you know, going on in the, in this 12 ring circus. And if you're not trying to stop any of them that someone else may consider offensive, or even you may consider offensive to you, if you're not trying to stop it, then you must be approving it. And of course, that's, that's just completely false. It's kind of interesting that, um, libertarianism, we do get saddled with uh, this accusation that we're just this this drug-addled freak show with all these <laughs> crazy people. And, and the thing that I think we need to keep in mind is that it really is true, you know, because um, how, what is the attraction to libertarianism for like a middle-of-the-road American, you know, compared to the people who are on the fringes, you know, I mean, the guys on the, on the fringes, I mean, their tastes are going to be unconventional. Their views are unconventional. And the idea that here's libertarianism, not everybody in libertarianism is going to believe the same as you believe, but they're going to leave you alone if you come here. And so, uh, you get, you know, when somebody's, you know, work, their occupations, their lifestyle or religion or whatever it is, their morals, you know, when they're safe and respectable, the government is going to leave you alone, most mostly, as long as you pay your taxes, they're going mm-hmm. to leave you alone. Yeah. And uh, and so if you're in that that middle group, you don't have so much that you're complaining about, you know, kind of your Joe average people and um, and they kind of hang around with other kind of uh, normal, I guess, is that a good word? <laughs> other kinds of normal people. And the normal people also kind of tend to want the government to uh, make sure everybody else acts acts normal. And then if you have these less normal people or fringe people, however you want to call it, um, why would you be surprised that they're going to be attracted to this political philosophy that lets them uh, have their eccentricities, you know, as long as they don't harm anybody else. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, live and let live is, is going to have a special appeal for anybody who doesn't really fit in. So here we are in, uh, in libertarianism and, and we're in it and we, we may fall somewhere on this spectrum too, from fringe to fringe, or maybe some of us are even kind of in the middle and have just, learned the uh, wisdom of minding our own business. But uh, it, it causes people that are, here, here's back the word, it causes the normal people to think that if we had a libertarian society, they would have to put up with this freak show yeah. uh, of, uh, you know, what what's going to happen when I go downtown, you know, with my kids, are, are there going to be, Couples, you know, having sex in the in the gutter with needles hanging out of their arms. <laughs> and, no, I mean, you know, it's kind of kind of scary. Yeah. But uh, you know, they're forgetting that freedom of association would be absolute in a free society, and uh, there are ways uh, that uh, a free society would probably be um, 
well, would definitely be more respectful of, of freedom of association. And um, we, we need to realize, and, and something that, you know, when these objections come up, that uh, we would have more control over our lives, over our neighborhoods and that. There would probably be, uh, you know, communities where certain behavior is acceptable and others where certain behavior is not acceptable. And you wouldn't take your family to the places where you thought they would be exposed to uh, whatever, you yeah. know, whatever it was that you didn't approve of. And there are ways to make that happen through through private property. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, I don't think it's a problem at all. And But we still have the fact that the, the poor people on the fringes of society are attracted to libertarianism, and you have to deal with that issue when, when you're talking to the people that are not on the fringes, and you're trying to welcome them in, too. It's, it can be kind of hard. I heard a comedian years back that was talking about, how, uh, about this same issue, and he said it's kind of like um, Bed Bath & Beyond. He says, uh, I don't go to Bed Bath & Beyond. He says, I don't like what they do there. I don't like the, the, the basic thing that's going on there, so I just don't go there. Uh, but that doesn't mean I want to shut down Bed Bath & Beyond. I just don't have any desire to go there. And, you know, that, that is the concept of, that is so hard for so many people to grasp about libertarianism. It's not that, you know, we're not giving a stamp of approval to wild, crazy behavior. We're just not we're just not doing anything to stop it because it's not aggressing upon us. That it's so simple. I don't know how that can be such a point of confusion for people. You know, I don't even know. I haven't even been to a bed bath and beyond. <laughs> but but I think I need to stop it though. <laughs> we can't be. You know, I was actually told, I, I quote this guy pretty frequently because. It just hit me so bizarre. His insanity just hit me so bizarre. But I had one person tell me, uh, and this was a devout Christian who called himself a minister, claimed to be, and I have no reason to to suspect that he was lying about it, but he claimed to be a minister, and he told me that uh, that my views are so destructive um, because it's not only is it causing other people to go to hell, but it might actually cause him to go to hell. And I thought, my first thought, of course, was, you're crazy. <laughs> but but I also thought, well, this is the old Puritan argument that, you know, I can't possibly go to heaven as long as you're sinning. And it's my responsibility to pre- prevent you from ever having the possibility of sinning. Otherwise, I can't go to heaven. And it's so opposite of what actual Christianity is and what the foundations of, uh, of Christianity, you know, rely upon. It's like, you know, when, when, uh, you can imagine Jesus in the scenario where they brought to him the woman that was caught in the act of, uh, 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 I can't remember the exact phraseology. Probably caught in adultery. In adultery, yeah, yeah. She was, according to the act, uh, accuser, she was caught in the act of adultery. And uh, then, you know, they quoted to him that, you know, according to the law, you're supposed to want to stone her right now. And and then he didn't stone her. And, you know, you, it, and that's the actual story from the Bible. But if you imagine the story, the scenario that these Puritan minded people would create, it would be where, um, you know, instead 
Jesus is the one stoning somebody because they might do something later, and that would prevent everybody else from somehow, you know, uh, obtaining salvation. It's it's just the exact opposite of the Christian story. It, it really is. It turns it upside down. If if Jesus had wanted to set an example for us, he would have picked up a rock and thrown the first one. But instead, he said, here's how you deal with uh, with these kinds of, of sins. You know, whoever, and, and it was interesting that it was, it was picked, it was a, a victimless crime mm-hmm. where you had a person who did not have to be restrained to keep the public peace or right. peace or anything. This wasn't the sort of crime where other people were, were being involved. It wasn't a murderer. It wasn't a thief. And, uh, he seemed to, the, his only interest was in, in, in the soul of this woman mm-hmm. and had no interest at all in actually punishing her. And mostly he was interested in, in forgiving her. And he just said, uh, go and sin no more. Yeah. He, he said to her after they all dr- dropped the stones and, and walked, walked away, he looked up and said, is there no one left to accuse you? And she said, you know, no, my Lord. And, and he said, well, then neither do I and said, go and sin no more. I mean, it's really a beautiful story. And, uh, when you, when you read the gospel stories, I mean, it's, it's just filled with, uh, instances like that, that, that make Jesus such an appealing character that people that, that aren't Christian still have to admire the things that he said and did. It's just amazing. It really yeah. is. Uh, if, if you if you weren't a Christian, if you if, if when you if you are a Christian, you look at him, and uh, you go, "Wow, how can he get, how can he get this?" You know, when you've talked, you you see situations, and you you see someone who you know is really really smart or really good, and they're just great. I remember when I was a brand new lawyer, and I would go to court with this uh, with well, it was my boss at the time. I would go to court and hear the defense attorney would jump up with a, with a, a, a really objection that I thought was just destroying, you know, my boss's case. And that, but the boss would come back and just have this brilliant, devastating argument or something or the way that they dealt with it. And I just sort of learned that when something came from one side that sounded you know, really bad that he would just come riding in and save the day because he knew what he was doing. He was so great. And, um, you know, and then later on, you know, you kind of learn that, well, he's, he wasn't exactly divine. He, <laughs> he was, he was just experienced and knew what he was doing. But <clears throat> Jesus is sort of the ultimate, ultimate, uh, wait till the end of the story because he's going to have an answer that will blow you away. Yeah. And, and unlike, you know, my, my boss, who I eventually learned that he was good, but it wasn't supernatural, <laughs> Jesus is just beyond that. His responses, the things that he said, says are always, always, they're not, they're not even spot on. They're like things you could never even imagine until you hear them. And this thing with her was the same thing. I mean, he does the same thing. In other instances where it involves the state, there's the, the, you know, should you pay the taxes, render to Caesar when they, when they came and asked him if he should pay the taxes. And he managed to, to 
really say that you should not pay the tax in a way that kept him from getting into trouble right then because he was not ready to be uh, to be crucified yet. So he he gave an answer that would satisfy the Romans and satisfied the um, the uh, the Jewish leaders at, of the time. Yeah, that's an often misquoted uh, segment there because if you, if you actually read that right in the beginning when they come to him, you can tell that they are coming to him specifically with an I gotcha. It's like, okay, you know, we sat around, we talked about it, we brainstormed, we figured out how are we going to get this Jesus dude to incriminate himself publicly so that we can get the Romans to then punish him the way we want them to. And so very clearly in the story, they sat around and really, you know, they they stretched their brain muscle to come up with the perfect scenario that they could give him to get him to self-incriminate in front of witnesses. And so they tried by by asking him a question that according to Jewish law, there's only one real way he can answer that, and that is to say no Jew should ever have to pay tribute to any Roman. That would have been the proper Jewish answer. But if he would have said that, he could have been arrested on the spot for inciting revolution. So he couldn't say that. And yet, in a sense, that is what he said, but he said it in such a way that they could find absolutely no grounds to take him in front of the authorities with. So it was it was just the brilliant um, it was the only way to answer a riddle uh, to keep him from at that time being executed. At that, that's true. At that time, and like you said, they they initially they plotted the question out. So I think the it even says that they they planned to ensnare him or something yeah. like that. Yeah. And that when they came to him, he knew exactly what they were doing. And uh, and although the funny thing is, is that. It seems that when he gave his answer, which was render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, to God the things that are God's, the Jewish leaders knew well that he was saying, you don't owe that money. You don't owe the tax. Uh, But the Romans didn't take it the same way, and it was only later on uh, the morning of Good Friday that the Jewish leaders sat down you know, with the Romans when they were accusing <laughs> Jesus and explain to those dummies uh-huh. what he had really said. And they, t- and he told, they told the Romans, you dopes, he wasn't saying to pay the tax. He was saying, don't pay the tax. <laughs> but it's sort of interesting when, uh, that was in, I think that was Matthew 20, but, um, this had followed on three chapters before, I think, in Matthew 17. This had followed another incident where it came up um, and asked, I, I believe they asked St. Peter, doesn't the teacher pay the temple tax, which is a different tax, right? Right, right. right. Totally and uh, yeah, it was separate. But then Jesus goes on to explain and he said, you know, do, who who pays the tax, you know, do the, do the people pay the tax or the king's sons pay the tax? And they said, well, the sons, they don't have to pay the tax. And they said, you know, the others have to pay the tax. And Jesus said, uh, so then the sons are free then. (laughs) And then he said, and this, this is fits just as well with paying, you know, the tribute to the, to, uh, the Romans, because, I would think that your duty to pay the Romans would be even 
less than your duty to pay the temple tax. He said, "Don't we don't want to offend these authorities. Mm-hmm. So go, and he said, go and throw a hook in the in the ocean or in the Sea of Galilee, I guess it was, and take the first fish that comes up, and when you open its mouth, you'll find a find a shekel in there to go and pay the tax. <laughs> so, you know, he made it very clear, no, you guys don't have to pay the tax, but today's not the day that I um, want to anger them, so just go catch a fish and give them the, give them the money that's in his mouth. And he did, because, he, you know, whatever... Jesus had a lot of points to make, but he would never make a point uh, if it wasn't on his timetable. Yeah, exactly. And, yeah. and so he, they were, he wasn't going to have himself uh, arrested and crucified until he was good and ready for that. And it, apparently it was not his time, so he said, just pay it right now. We don't want to make him mad. He didn't say pay it because you owe it. He said pay it so they don't get upset. I think that's and that's wisdom. That's the difference between you know you can say well we got, you have to stand on your principles. Yes, we do have to stand on our principles, but we also have to pick our time and our place for our battles, and we and we choose those battles based on wisdom, and we decide okay you know what it's easier just to do this stupid thing that the government wants us to do and get that done and get it out of the way than it is to make this the line in the sand where I'm ready to go to jail for or die for or whatever. Yeah, I think that's a good is a good lesson, you know, probably for us that uh you know Jesus had a mission and he also had principles and he always, you know, was adamant the mission is first. Right. And even if even if we don't owe the owe this money, we're going to pay it because this is not the day for that fight. We're not going to die on this hill. Right. And you can take that idea later into later in the uh you know in the New Testament the letters of of St Paul where he talks about you know paying the taxes if you owe them you know honor pay honor where honor is due and all of that i think Romans 13 is 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 full of a lot of that and you you really need to take those writings with the same grain of salt that there were a lot of things that the Christians in the first centuries put up with because they were just, they were the nobodies of the earth. I mean, they were, Christianity was, was a half slave religion at least, I think. Yeah. And, um, they had a mission they were there for and they were not going to have that mission subverted simply because they didn't think that they should, uh, pay a tax or, or be drafted into the army, or uh, uh, many other moral positions that uh, later on in the luxury that we have of being in a society that tolerates Christians, they could not do that. I mean, he said, he he wrote in, in his letters, slaves obey your masters. Now, nobody in any Christian church today is going to say, oh, that was him approving slavery and saying that it was good. <laughs> No, he was just saying, if if we want to make the hallmark of Christianity here in the year 50 A.D., you know, an anti-slavery movement, we will be slaughtered to the last man yeah. by 60 A.D. And that was not why they were there. That's not why they came. It, that was just a side issue. 
just like paying the taxes, a side issue, and all these other things are important, but they're side issues, and the day will come for that battle, and um, this is not that day. Yeah, you know, I've heard so many uh, different people talking about Romans, uh, that, that section in Romans where Paul tells people essentially to obey the government. And and first off, you know, my, I, I always approach that in a couple different directions. First off, um, what exact translation are we going to decide that we're going to use for that, and how are we going to look at it? Because some modern translation, transla- trans, translations uh, just make that despicable. They, they're really bad, where older translations make it a little bit more ambiguous. But also, you know, the thing that strikes me most is this is Paul, who is under arrest and being held in Rome, writing to Romans who are Christians in Rome, who are literally under the sword at the time of them reading this. And eventually, this same guy, Paul, is put to death by the emperor of Rome, specifically because he won't obey the emperor. So... Is are we really to believe that it's Paul's intention to say whatever you do, always obey the government, except me? I'm going to die next week because I'm not obeying the government. I mean, yeah. there's such an obvious uh, disassociation here with logic that clearly either he means something else, or we're translating it wrong, or there's there's something in this mix that shouldn't be just taken on, at surface value. Yeah, yeah, you're right. You're, you have to ask why 11 out of the 12 apostles ended up being killed by the government if they were such such brown-nosing toadies. Uh, how did they end up, all end up being martyred? I, and, and well, in the 12th uh, that died naturally, he, they attempted to kill him how many times? You know, boiled him in oil, threw stones at him, beat him with sticks. Uh, this is This would be John. And yet the old guy just lived on until, you know, he was up in his 90s when he finally died. Yeah, yeah, until it was time for him to go. He wasn't going. Uh, yeah, I, 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 you, you need to take these, you know, with a grain of salt in the sense that uh, they were written at a certain time and place. And, you know, this thing about being, giving honor to the authorities and, tribute to them who it is due in that. Um, there was, uh, you said St. Paul, you know, he wrote, he wrote this and then he was about, he was about to be killed. Did, have you heard the, the story about, uh, the emperor Nero, uh, and when St. Paul wrote about, uh, he wrote to Timothy in the last letter that he wrote before he died. And he said, I have, finished the race i have fought the good fight i have won the crown and nero the emperor nero when he was um in the year 66 a.d that was a year that they had the olympics Mm -hmm. in greece and nero he fancied himself a great athlete and he also considered himself a um a great musician. I mean, right. a, a rock star uh, is is how he saw himself. Mm-hmm. And uh, so he went on this concert tour of uh, of Greece, where he went around and um, you know played for the people everywhere. And of course, he was this nutty emperor, and he was he was 
he was a bit mentally unbalanced. And so uh, he, he's on this concert tour. And while he's in Greece, he competed in the four horse chariot race in the Olympics. <laughs> and th- this is, you can read this in uh, historian Suetonius in his book, The Twelve Caesars. But he reported that Nero, he drove his chariot, only Nero drove it with 10 horses. <laughs> and uh, in the middle of the race, he got thrown out of his chariot. They had to all run out there and pick him back up and put him back at the reins in the chariot. And then he went on again. But then he, he couldn't finish the race. He, he couldn't even stay in his seat, kept falling out. And he gave up the race. But since he was the emperor, you know, the judges all crowned him the winner anyway. And and he he was grateful to that. And he declared the province a free country and gave the judges <laughs> a bunch of money in that. And uh, and this, then Nero comes back to Rome. I mean, this what a humiliation. I mean, the whole Roman world is laughing at this buffoon. And uh, it's right after that, after Nero wins the race, wins the crown, violates the rules, doesn't finish the race, and Paul writes the letter to the Timothy, and I, I just pulled it up here, the, the quote. Uh, he writes to Timothy, an athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. <laughs> the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown, and Nero got the crown, <laughs> a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge will award to me on that day. Nero, you know, he won the crown too, but he never finished the race. Right. And Nero didn't compete according to the rules, but he did get the crown. Uh, This farewell letter to Timothy, you know, I don't know, you know, there's some debate about when uh, St. Paul died. And some believe that he died a little earlier, like in 65 AD and then the other traditions that he and St. Peter both were killed in 60, uh, probably 66, maybe 67, probably 66 AD. In other words, right after Nero got back from the Olympics. Right. Um, and you know, it's interesting if, if, um, if Paul wrote this letter to Timothy right after Nero came back from the Olympics, I mean, there is no way on earth that what he wrote was not just satire yeah uh, against i mean it's too much the same i mean if he didn't write this after this incident with nero then it was prophecy when he wrote it (laughs) it was so close so biting this was a sword that went in the front of the emperor and out the other side and uh and of course you have to ask yourself well was this just a private private letter to Timothy that, you know, would never have gotten back to the emperor's ears. I think there's plenty of evidence that these letters of Paul very rapidly, uh, when he sent them to whoever it was they were going to, the custom had developed of copying them and sending them around. Right. And so, I don't know, I kind of think that maybe the emperor heard about it <laughs> and but maybe not, I don't know. But if he said, the fact that he said this at around the same time that the emperor did this just tells me that he is just skewering this guy. I mean, with as, as devastating and courageous uh, ridicule as has ever been written about anybody anywhere. 
you know, there's so many things in history that we look back on now through, unfortunately, through public school eyes and, you know, through the, through the wash of the years that have gone by. And we lose a lot of the context that would have been so obvious at the time. Uh, with things like that, you know, it would have been just absolutely bold and obvious to anybody seeing that, that he was mocking the emperor, that he was saying, okay, you know, fine, I, you know, I've, I've been here, I've been in jail, I've been doing this, I've been trying to give my witness, all this has been going on for a long time. Well, the time has come for me to say this, and, and to say that about, uh, Nero specifically, knowing the kind of murderous monster and crazy type of a person that he was, it was essentially saying, all right, I've done everything I can do, and, Whatever's going to happen now is in the hands of this nut. But but you've said it in such a way that you've given a wink to everybody in your organization, and you've done it with beautiful comedy. And I think a lot of that is lost uh, to to you know to the modern reader who just reads through and and uh, it doesn't realize that what they're reading had tremendous historical context. Absolutely. I mean, at the end of when he said that, I mean, you can almost see the words that are not written there. Are, are y'all reading between the lines yet? Uh, and, and of course, he, he would have known that this would come to the emperor's ears. At a, another place in the letter, he makes it very clear he knows he's about to die. Mm-hmm. And, um, and he doesn't ex- explain exactly why he knows that. Maybe because I'm a, I'm writing this letter, and <laughs> as soon as it gets back to the emperor, I don't know. He probably knew anyway. Maybe that's why he he went ahead with the green light and wrote such a thing. Yeah. Uh, somehow, you know, maybe he he really needed to communicate that uh, this is code. I mean, if there's anybody out there dumb enough <laughs> to take Romans 13 as mean, you should do everything that these murdering monsters say come on you know <laughs> you know read the lines if you can't read between them i would be doing my listeners a disservice if i had you on this long and had this much fun talking to you about this stuff that both you and i have such a deep interest in if i didn't also take advantage of the fact that i'm speaking with a qualified attorney who is a former prosecutor and uh, saw the light, you know, so to speak. Uh, Randy, at first, you know, I so appreciate that you took that step. And I've, I've known, uh, I had a real good friend for many, many years who was a uh, private attorney up in the Northwest, and he fought government uh, very valiantly at the risk of his own career for a lot of years. And, uh, and, and he came to... A point in his life where the fight against government and the fight for the individuals that were being accused by government, um, he was making a comfortable living off of it, uh, and yet he he played this little game where he had these really good friends that were FBI agents, and he thought it was really cool to constantly hang out with his FBI buddies. And uh, about a year ago, around the time of the Boston bombing and all that whole mess that took place then, Mm -hmm. this friend of mine came to a position where he had to publicly realize and acknowledge that his friends in the FBI were essentially monsters, and, uh, and he had to disassociate with them and their activities, or he had to lie 
about the situation and say, oh, no, you know, uh, these FBI guys are really, really good and what they're doing is good. And 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 he and at that time, he and I had very serious discussions. And unfortunately, you know, it was almost like a movie scenario where he chooses the dark side, even knowing uh, where he was and what he was doing and, and everything. And it was real. It was kind of well, it was very heartbreaking for me to have to let go of a friend knowing that he was so close to being able to say, you know, I know what's right, I know what's wrong, and I'm going to choose what's right, and I'm not going to continue this uh, this dirty association with these people. And then I, I, and I look at the sacrifice that you've made. I mean, you could have stayed in the prosecu- prosecutorial side of law. You could have you know, um, maintained, I know in the state that you're in, there's a lot of cronyism. There's a lot of corruption. You could have stayed within all of that and just closed your eyes and pushed on through, but you made the sacrifice and you didn't. And I really want to tell you, I appreciate that. Well, I mean, I, I, I don't consider it particularly heroic. I mean, I'm, I'm glad that at some point, I realized that that was not the thing to do. You know, in prosecution, it's kind of a mixed bag. Uh, When I was a prosecutor, probably early on, I had to do more things like drug cases and that, which I would find, well, I just wouldn't do anymore. But um, there are are plenty of things that a prosecutor does that are, are very commendable. I mean, I would I would be a prosecutor again tomorrow if this were a free society and uh, you had a victim who needed, um, you know, to needed me to to prosecute the person that had murdered their child or or something like that or broken into their house and stolen their TV. Right. I mean, there are good things that prosecutors do. And and as I actually became more experienced as a prosecutor, I was able to do more of those uh, prosecutions that were serious crimes where people were harmed. And so, you know, as long as you do that job, uh, you know, with integrity and you're honest about it, there's nothing dishonorable about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and somebody has to do it. And while the state is, um, while the state is still in power and is the only way to, deal with uh, people that hurt other people, then it needs to be done, and it needs to be done by people that, um, you know, will do a good job and will be honest about doing it. Mm-hmm. Now, unfortunately, there's there's plenty of people that aren't necessarily honest about doing it, and it's also mixed in with so much uh, prosecution of people that haven't hurt anybody else. Yeah. And that's the part that is just completely unpalatable and... Um, you know, I was glad, glad finally to end that. You know, it took a long time, though. I, I was a prosecutor starting in 1993, and even then I was very, very libertarian. And not, 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 I didn't even know what it was, but I was so skeptical of the government and what they could do that was good. And one of the things that I, I thought that they did that was good was kept the peace. Um, and that that sort of allowed me to get into a prosecution without any moral qualms in that. Mm-hmm. It was probably being a prosecutor, though, that eventually led me to believe that the drug war was not accomplishing any good because we would do a big 
drug roundup of every drug dealer in town. And if you have enough undercover guys, you can figure out who they are. Mm -hmm. You round them all up, and then a month later, their little brothers have all stepped into that breach. And you all you've done is create younger drug dealers <laughs> and uh, had done no good at all. And the, the futility of it is obvious to everyone in law enforcement, uh, whether they're libertarian or statist. It doesn't matter. It's very clear that you're just, you know, it's like, it's like a billion Chinese are running at you over the hill and you're sitting there with a BB gun. I mean, you just, Forget it. Yeah. It, it's it's useless, and yet it goes on and on. <clears throat> I I don't I don't know, you know why that doesn't become apparent, but I, I guess there is this idea that uh, we have to try. I, I I you know I try to think back how I felt about it when I was doing it, and I think maybe there was that moral imperative there that that said well. I realize that this isn't working very well, but we have to do something. So we go on and we do it. I'm just glad that I, I finally gave it up. It's been, I, I, I quit, I quit at the end of 2006 hmm. and I've been a private defense attorney ever since. I, I say it's the only thing that I really can do now in the practice of law because it's the only thing I can do that I oppose the government on every single case. <laughs> but that's and and even true. with that I'm making the assumption here I haven't sat down and looked through your files but I'm making the assumption that there are probably cases that come to you that you say no I'm not going to take that I'm going to let that go however it goes but you know I I can assume that but uh well that, that happens more when you're handling civil cases mm -hmm. and I and when when I before I constant I mean settled completely on doing uh on criminal defense, I did have some like that, but the one thing I never ever would do would be someone would come to me. I did some cases where I did some public, uh, public ballot issues where you, people would put something on the ballot and you'd have to, there would be lawsuits to defend the language that was in the ballot or on the ballot title, you know, what would appear on the, on the, uh, you know, that the, the citizens would read when they were getting ready to vote for it and that and there was always some fights over it and i did uh, several cases like that a, a few years ago five six seven eight years ago and um after i did a couple of those i had some people more people were calling me they would find out who did these kinds of things and not many people do so people would call you and i had people call me that had some issue that they wanted to put on the ballot and I, I just refused to take any issue. If if I would have voted no on that <laughs> issue, I wouldn't take it. I mean, you know, how how would you sleep to do something like that? It's it's one thing to defend a criminal defendant, even if they're guilty, because you need you need to have this come from two sides. You have the prosecutors trying to trying to get the conviction. And you need to have somebody on the other side pushing back just as hard mm -hmm. to try to see if you can get the truth to squeeze out between that. I mean, that is our system. Um, you know, not perfect, but you can see that if you have the prosecutor pushing, 
you know, on his side and you're not pushing as hard as you can, then what's going to happen is that innocent people are going to go to prison. Right. So you really have to have to push that as as hard as you can. But, um, yeah, I, I, I don't do any any of that anymore. And so every case that comes to me, some cases are really, really distasteful. Like um, I always found uh, child sex cases to be about the most depressing yeah, distasteful cases um, I was ever involved in when I was a prosecutor, and uh, a, a ch- child uh, child pornography cases are always were very very distressing, um, just because of what was what was being done mm-hmm. in those cases to the children, and right. and there you are, you're in the case, you have to you have to see this, and it just oh it's just, it's 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 terrible, and I I'm reluctant on those, but not because the, those fellows in those cases are, um, you know, don't deserve a good defense because they do, mm-hmm. but um, and and maybe not for their benefit, but for the rest of us. I know when I was a prosecutor, I had, uh, you know, you'd have a case, and say it would be a murder case, very very serious, and uh, at the end of it. If I would get a conviction, I would, it would be terrible if I wasn't really truly convinced that the person was guilty from all the evidence. Right. Because sometimes they would have a real good lawyer and sometimes they would not. Mm-hmm. And I never felt less satisfied with winning a criminal case in a jury trial, say, uh, when the defense attorney had not done a good job. And all this kind of goes back to to somewhat to what we were talking about with Jesus when uh, in the case with the uh, coin in the in the fish's mouth. Uh, there there's still a time where we have to stand back stand back and we have to say, look, I don't like what's going on any more than the next guy, but this is where we're at right now, and so this is what we have to do. We have to you know we have to drive on the roads that they provide. We have to pay the the gas tax when we go to the gas pump. We have to. You know, I have to file with this stinking IRS because if I don't, the consequences are too great right now. And another time it may be a different circumstance, but right now we, we, you know, we, we fold and we do what we have to do to survive. Yeah. Well, it's pretty hard to get away from the state right now. Right. I mean, I, I have a lot of admiration for people that are able to disengage you know, more than say I am. I mean, I'm, my job is so wrapped up, you know, with, with the state system in that, you know, it's, it's, you're rubbing shoulders pretty, pretty tight with them. And mm-hmm. like I said, the only thing that I can fall back on is that at least I'm, I'm in there trying to, you know, hold the doors open <laughs> 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 rather than have them snap shut. So I, 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 there's a, what do you want to call it? <laughs> you're you're still in contact with with a dirty subject. Yeah, yeah. But isn't that what people in this world have to do all the time? Well, if I ever see you writing anything uh, really tongue in cheek, talking about having run the race and having won the crown, and and uh, I'll, I'll I'll worry about you. <laughs> well, if you ever see see the president in the Olympics, you, yeah. you might look for that. <laughs> <laughs> oh my! 
Well, I've I've pretty much stolen an hour of your time here. I really appreciate it. I know, you know, to to get a successful practicing attorney to take an hour out of the middle of his day and just talk to you, I mean, just from a monetary point of view, that's a, a pretty amazing thing. I appreciate you taking the time to talk to me today, Randy. Well, Ben, it has been an honor to be on the Bad Quaker podcast. I, I've been listening to you for several years and always enjoy your take. And, um, you know, I ho- hope you haven't let your standards down today <laughs> by <clears throat> bringing me in to sully the waters. But uh, thanks for having me. I sure do appreciate it. I hope to see you soon. We're going to be going through Missouri, and uh, I really hope to be able to to sit down with you. It was so much fun to get to meet all the different people from the Freedom Fiends you know, radio show up at Porkfest. Uh, I wish you could have made it, but I understand how those things are. But hopefully we'll be able to uh, compensate for that by actually seeing each other in the in the months ahead. Hey, let's do that. Uh, Randy, let me uh, sign off here with my official tagline. Uh, folks, thanks for listening today, and remember to visit BadQuaker.com, where liberty is our mission. And also, Randy, uh, what's your website? The folks can folks can buy your books and uh, check you out. The website is www.freeisbeautiful. No spaces, of course. Freeisbeautiful.net. Okay, and folks, be sure and, and uh, get over there and get Randy's book. And if you're Catholic specifically. Then I might, uh, you, you're probably going to find it a really good book. And if, even if you're not a Catholic, I think you might like it. Randy, thanks a ton for coming on the show with me. Thank and, you, uh, Ben. We'll, uh, I'll definitely be hearing you back on Freedom Fiends on the radio, too. Catch you there. Okay. Thanks a lot, Randy. Bye. Bye.